Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 147, Dr. Daniel McCoy on Faith, Part 1. Dr. Daniel McCoyne earned an MDiv from Princeton Theological Seminary and an MA and a PhD in the History and Philosophy of Science from the University of Notre Dame. Now he's an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Boston College. He specializes in Philosophy of Science, Epistemology, and Philosophy of Biology, and he's published in journals such as Science, Philosophy of Science, Pragmatics and Cognition, and Biology and Philosophy. But as you'll hear, he also works in philosophy of religion. I had the pleasure of meeting him and hearing a really rich presentation from him at the Nature and Value of Faith Project in Bellingham, Washington in July of 2016. And I discovered that he's published some very interesting articles on the topics of what faith is and why it's valuable. In between sessions, I had the chance to interview him about belief, faith, and what he calls the belief plus model of faith, on which faith is belief combined with qualities such as love and commitment. This podcast would not have happened without that meeting, so I should acknowledge the support of a grant from the Templeton Religion Trust. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of myself and Dr. McCoyne and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Templeton Religion Trust. Dr. McCoyne, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Thanks, Dale. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Dr. McCoyne, your main training and your main published research has been in philosophy of science. How did you get interested in the topic of faith? Well, in addition to being very enthusiastic about science, I'm also a devout Christian. So one reason has to do with my own attempts to reflect on what's involved in a life oriented around following Jesus, loving God, and loving one's neighbor. Like many Christians in today's world, I've wrestled with doubts at various points in my walk with Jesus and questions like what room is left for the kinds of claims that the gospel makes and the hopes that it raises given what science teaches us about reality. A second sort of reason has to do with the value that I and many other philosophers are increasingly coming to place on attempts to speak with clarity and rigor about issues of broad public interest and concern. In our time, questions about the attitudes that religious communities take towards science, for example, are of global concern, and they affect all sorts of areas of public life. And I think that both religious and secular communities have a lot of stake in the stances that people take towards science. I actually think that there's some opportunities here for projects that seek to find common ground and uh, mutual understanding. And I hope that philosophers can play a role in promoting vigorous conversation that's also respectful. One potentially fruitful starting point for thinking about such issues concerns a cluster of questions related to faith. So what exactly is faith? How does it relate to things like belief, doubt, trust, hope, and loyalty? To what extent is faith compatible with doubt? Dr. McCoy, Mark Twain famously quipped that faith is believing what you know ain't so. <laughs> In your view, is this what Christians, Jews, and Muslims are commending as important and valuable? Well, no. 
as Twain points out with great wit, it's pretty clear that this would be both epistemically defective and ill-advised. So in order to know that something ain't so, you have to at least believe that it ain't so, and it has to be true that it ain't so. One problem here is that if you both believe that something ain't so, and that it is so, you'd have an obviously contradictory set of beliefs. I suspect that Twain thought that deep down lots of ordinary folk can see that the central claims shared by Jews, Christians, and Muslims are false. So too often religious commitment involves self-deception. If that's what you take faith to be, it's hard to see why it would be of value. It isn't clear that you can have faith that something is so if you confidently believe that it isn't so. But if that's possible, it doesn't look like the sort of thing that we should commend. Dr. McCoyne, my experience is that a lot of people who are interested in science, speaking of what you know ain't so, they tend to have this view that science has just revealed all of these things that are just obviously incompatible with any type of traditional religious belief. Do you think that that's right? Well, it matters a great deal what type of religious belief that we're talking about. Science tells us a great deal, for example, about the origin and age of the solar system, you know, the Earth is 4.6 billion years old. We think that life originated on Earth about 3.8 billion years ago. And so if you're accepting a set of claims that says that the Earth is only 6,000 years old, something like that, I, I do think that those are undermined by science. But there are also particular claims, say, that Christianity has a stake in, like that God exists and that Jesus was raised from the dead. Let's first take the claim that God exists. That is a claim about reality, but it's not clear that science resolves that sort of issue either way. These seem to be metaphysical claims that at least arguably are beyond the scope of scientific inquiry, at least at this stage. And a particular claim like Jesus being raised from the dead, that's not the sort of thing that happens every day, of course. There might be worries that this would come into tension with laws of nature. There are certainly a lot of questions to be addressed there. But it's also a claim about a particular historical event in the past, rather than a general claim about the regular operations of nature. And so I think that there's a great deal of room to disagree about matters like that. In your view, there's knowledge that isn't scientific knowledge, that is something that's part of or follows from a well-confirmed scientific theory? For instance, historical knowledge that, you know, that George Washington existed or a certain battle took place, according to the records? Sure. I think that there are important differences between claims about what happened in the past and then scientific theories which attempt to characterize the regular operations of nature. And so it matters quite a bit just what the religious claims are. So 6,000 years old for the earth, that's not going to fly. How about a religion that says that the cosmos is an illusion? You might think that's incompatible with science or with some of the evidence that scientists cite. If you say XYZ 50 times, you'll never get cancer. You know, I've got some magic mantra. You could do a double blind study and try this. And if some of the people get cancer, then it looks like you've refuted a religious claim. That's right. 
to the extent that someone is making empirical claims that we can go out and check and see if they occur or not, they are in principle falsifiable by means of empirical investigation. But the existence of God isn't an empirical claim. Well, it's a claim about reality that may or may not have empirical consequences. So if you try to formulate it as an empirical claim, you're going to end up making a claim that God exists and then claim to the effect that if God exists, then we would expect to see such and such. And if that's your view, then we can go out and check whether or not we see such and such. And that's a way to get a handle on whether or not a claim has testable empirical content. It reminds me of the famous story, I don't know if this is true or legendary, about the Soviet cosmonaut that looked out his window while in orbit over the Earth and said he didn't see God out there. I mean, (laughs) what was he expecting to see? Like a guy with a big beard in, in orbit with him? Or I don't know. That's right. If it was part of the content of someone's religious belief that we would see someone in a big beard beyond the clouds, well... We don't observe that, and so that's problematic for a claim like that. But it's part of traditional Jewish, Christian, and Islamic faith that God isn't directly observable, though the thought is that God has chosen to self-reveal at various points in history. Dr. McCoyne, when you talk to non-philosophers about this topic of religious faith, what do you think most people think that faith is? Well, it's very common to understand faith as belief without sufficient evidence. So, for example, Steven Pinker takes it that faith is believing something without good reason. Richard Dawkins takes faith to be belief in spite of, perhaps even because of, lack of evidence. Alexander Rosenberg thinks that by definition, faith is belief in the absence of evidence. I think that understood as belief without sufficient evidence, it's pretty clear that faith will turn out to be unreasonable, irrational, or in some way epistemically defective. If faith is belief on insufficient evidence, it would seem that faith ranks among the intellectual vices, perhaps even moral vices, as W.K. Clifford famously argued. It's a very strange idea, if you think about it, that somebody should believe something precisely because there's no evidence or not enough evidence. I mean, it almost sounds like something that people would say rather than do. I mean, like, imagine a rebellious teenager. Their parents tell them that something is wrong. I don't know, doing drugs or something. And then the kid says, well, I'm going to do it precisely because it's bad. You don't take that seriously. Like, that's not why they're doing it. They might say that just to make somebody mad. So similarly, if a religious person says, I believe it because it's absurd, you know, misquoting Tertullian, that can't really be why they're believing it, right? Unless they're just trying to be rebellious or maybe they're trying to show how courageous they are or something like that. It's very strange, this definition. That's right. I think that way of understanding faith is arguably all the more dangerous owing to its associations with religious enthusiasm 
passions associated with religion evoke a deep fervor and emotional attachment can quickly move to kind of outgrouped enmity. The question, would the world be better off without religious belief or religious faith, is looming larger in the public consciousness than ever before. Even Christian thinkers who think that the evidential situation is much more favorable, so they're not going to say it's belief on insufficient evidence, but they often take faith to essentially involve belief that in some way either stands above or goes beyond what the evidence establishes. So, for example, Thomas Aquinas thought that reason and experience could furnish us with good grounds for believing that God exists. But he also thought that other claims, such as the doctrine of the Trinity and Incarnation, are mysteries that we can't establish independently of special revelation by God. Dr. McCoy, in some of your published work, you discuss what you call a belief plus understanding of faith. You then proceed to object to it. What is this doctrine and why do you reject it? Well, notice that all of the characterizations of faith discussed so far take faith to be a set of beliefs. And the questions that people tend to argue about under the heading of faith and reason concern what sort of epistemic status those beliefs have. So what I call the belief plus view of faith holds that whatever else faith involves, it requires a particular psychological attitude, belief toward its content. So if we're talking about Christian faith, for example, the claim is that one cannot have faith unless one believes the basic Christian story or kerygma. The gospel message includes central claims such as Jesus is a Messiah and was raised from the dead, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, and the presupposition, of course, that God exists. So on the belief plus view, one cannot have faith in God unless one confidently believes that God exists. Dr. McCoy, I think we should say a little bit about what we mean by belief. Some people use belief just as a synonym for having faith, but in your scholarly work on this, you're using it in the kind of philosophical sense. Could you just expound on that? Like, what do you mean by having a belief? A careful listener might already realize that you imply that having knowledge that something is so requires having belief that it's so. It doesn't rule out having belief that it's so. So what do you mean just by having a belief like that the sky is blue or belief that two plus two is four or belief that George Washington was the first American president? Good. And what exactly do we mean by belief here? And the fact is that philosophers have offered very different accounts of what exactly belief is. So there are a lot of questions about the nature of belief, its relation to probability judgments, its relation to neuroscience that are still poorly understood and remain sources of disagreement. I think that we've asked the word belief to cover far too much of the cognitive landscape. And we can come back to that issue when we talk about what I call the meaning drift objection. But for the moment, let's just proceed with the rough and ready idea that you believe a proposition P just when you think that P is true. So we might think of belief as a disposition to feel confident that a proposition P is true when you consider it. So for example, most of our listeners believe that 7 plus 5 equals 12 and that they are less than 100 feet tall, even though they're not thinking about those propositions very often throughout the day. So it's just some sort of mental commitment that reality is a certain way. That's right. And I think it's also worth pointing out that many philosophers today think of belief as a largely passive and, for the most part, involuntary state that we just find ourselves in. 
you can't just decide to believe that you're 100 feet tall or if you see a truck coming toward you on the road that there isn't a truck there. For the most part, it's not something that you can just decide to have or lack. Once one of my graduate school buddies who was an ex-Christian atheist suggested that just for a weekend I should believe that there's no God. And I told him, it's not plausible to me. I could think it like I could willfully have the thought there's no God, but that's not going to actually shift my belief. I could go around telling people that there's no God, but then I'd feel stupid because I would be speaking insincerely. Yeah, the belief just seems to kind of come upon us, doesn't it? I mean, it's not something we could directly change, just like we can by will raise our arm or hold our breath or something like that. That's right. And you asked what objections that I have to the belief plus view. And I would say that broadly speaking, my reservations about the belief plus view fall under three main categories. So first, there's the worry that it mischaracterizes the nature of faith. And then second, if we do understand faith in the way that the belief plus view suggests, very often it's going to turn out that that sort of faith is epistemically defective, maybe irrational or unreasonable or something like that. And then third, I think it's also very difficult to see why faith understood in that way is valuable. So maybe we could talk a bit about more specifically about concerns under those categories. So on this issue of voluntary control, there's a question about the extent to which Faith is something that you can decide to have or lack. At least a widespread view within the Christian tradition, and of course there's a vast diversity of views here, but a widespread view has been that faith is, at least to some extent, under our control. The gospel narratives take it to be something for which you can be praised for having, blamed for lacking. Jesus chastises Peter, says, you of little faith, when the disciples are in the boat and they get scared about the storm. And then he marvels at the centurion's faith, you know, not in all of Israel have I found such faith. I think that this language of calls for decision in response to God's grace are prevalent in the Christian tradition. Jesus' own invitation is to come, follow me. Hymns like, I've decided to follow Jesus, emphasize the importance of making a decision. And if that's right, if we should think that having faith involves, or at least can involve, some kind of voluntary response, a decision to accept or reject the gospel message, I think there's a real question here about whether faith is distinct from belief and whether or not one can have faith even in the absence of belief. And notice there's a difference here between simply lacking the confident belief, say, that God exists, and believing confidently that God doesn't exist. There's a huge middle ground between the belief that P and the belief that not P, where you're in some more unsettled state about what to think. You might still think that P is likely to be true, more likely than not to be true, or at least not be confident enough to believe that P isn't true. We should talk about this for a minute. This is, I think, an area of confusion that I meet with pretty frequently talking with students and talking to people on the internet. 
believing that there is no God. That's what most philosophers call atheism. Just there is no such being as that, the kind of being they're talking about, a perfect being or an uncreated creator, that kind of thing. Whatever the Bible's talking about, there isn't a being like that. That's a fictional character. That's atheism. There's no God. But around on the internet, and it's entered into our culture a little bit now, people sometimes call this negative atheism, just lack of belief in God. And I always tell people, okay, I know what you mean, but this is kind of ridiculous because then babies and rocks and the planet Mars are going to be atheists because they don't have belief in God because they don't have any beliefs. Well, I don't know about the baby, but at least the rock doesn't have any beliefs. So philosophers usually call this an agnostic, somebody who doesn't believe that there is a God or that there isn't. But then I see people in popular discussions doing a little amateur etymology, and they notice that the word gnosis, the Greek word for knowledge, is in the word agnostic. So they say, Mm -hmm. well, that's if you believe that God exists, but you don't know it. That's not what it means. I mean, it was coined to mean precisely this person who's on the fence. They just don't have a mental commitment either way. So you're pointing out between the atheist and the firm believer, there's all this middle ground, a person who doesn't believe that God exists or believe that there's no God. But now someone might say, how could there be middle ground? Say a little more about what type of person that might be. Good. So the term agnosticism, as you point out, was introduced in the 19th century by T.H. Huxley precisely to refer to someone who withholds or suspends judgment with respect to questions about the existence of God. I think that we can all understand the sense in which someone might be in that mental state and for all practical purposes live a life that is equivalent to uh, the one that an atheist would live. But I think that same sort of state of doubt or not knowing quite what to think about whether God exists can be accompanied by a vast range of very different responses. Someone might be seriously in doubt about whether God exists, but then have a whole set of affections and commitments that would accompany that that I think can fairly be characterized as a response of faith. And habits as well. I mean, they might even be somebody who actively prays every day. That's right. They're just not entirely sure they think somebody's listening. That's exactly right. And I, I think that there's important work to be done exploring the range of different responses that are available to a person when they find themselves in that intellectual position. And perhaps for Christian thinkers or Jewish or Muslim thinkers to reclaim some of that ground that's been sort of conceded to agnosticism and then equated with practical atheism. I think that we've been operating with these crude categories for putting people in, you know, these three different boxes. Either you believe that God exists or you believe that God doesn't exist or you're in this middle ground, you know, um, that we call agnosticism and we've just neglected the fact that a whole range of very different responses are available to a person that finds himself in that position intellectually.
Sometimes I found that the way I describe agnosticism, it might sort of make it sound like you're a pathetic fence sitter. Right. Or just that you're indecisive, or I don't know, you're less committal or something. But what you're saying is that in the definition of faith that you have put forward, which we'll talk about next week on the podcast, on that definition, a lot of people that are called agnostics are going to count as having faith in God. That's right. That's interesting if that's right, because you they might have just uh, thought they were in no man's land. As far as the culture wars, they're not the culture war atheists, and they're not the culture war Christian or theist. Okay, yeah, but that's one thing. But you're saying when you consider more deeply what faith is, maybe actually they have it. Lacking belief that God exists may not disqualify you from having faith that God exists. Exactly. And the way that we think about what faith is can have very different implications for the extent to which that we think that faith is compatible with doubt. So notice, on the belief plus model, if you think that you can't have faith without belief, that view is going to be compatible only with a fairly limited range of doubts. I think most people would grant that faith is compatible with having some range of doubts, right? Most of us don't think that you have to be certain that P in order to believe that P. But it's also the case that if your confidence falls below a certain level, and people kind of set the threshold for belief at very different places, that's an issue of dispute, but say, if you don't think that it's more likely than not that God exists, seems like that level of doubt would arguably be incompatible with saying that you believe that God exists. Yeah, a lot of people would say that. Right. Richard Swinburne has this notion of contrastive belief, where if you think about say, a group of sports teams. You might think that the Red Sox aren't very likely to win the World Series next year. But if you thought that it was more likely that they would win than any of the relevant competitors, more likely that they'll win than the Yankees will or the uh, St. Louis Cardinals will, there may be a sense in which we'd be willing to attribute belief that the Red Sox will win next year Oh, I see. The Red Sox are like at 30% and the Yankees are at 25%. And I don't know, the White Sox are at 5%. Exactly. Cubs at 1%. So if you thought that they were the most likely to win out of that group of competitors, even though they're still not very likely overall to win, there may be room for a belief attribution there. But Still, uh, suppose that you didn't think that. Suppose that you thought that, to bring it back to the religious case, that naturalism was more likely than Christianity to be true. Someone in that, with doubts that significant, couldn't have faith on the belief plus model. And one of the surprising claims that I'm going to argue for is that there's another way of understanding what faith is that I think is rooted deeply in a biblical understanding of faith that allows for that possibility. Dr. McCoyne, in connection with faith and this topic of doubt, I've read in at least one of your articles, you bring up the case of Mother Teresa, which became a famous case after, I believe, her journal entries were published. That's right. So I think one important objection to the belief plus view concerns the lived experience of doubt in the lives of devout Christians, such as Mother Teresa. I think that a lot of us can relate to the cry of the man in Mark 9.24 who says, I believe or I have faith. Help my unbelief or lack of faith. The word there is pisteio, the Greek verb for faith. In the case of Mother Teresa, 
she experienced significant doubts over a period of five decades. Yet she kept her vow to follow Jesus and to care for the poorest of the poor, for the weak and the downtrodden in the midst of these deep questions about whether there is a God there that hears her prayer. She is so concerned with this question that she's worried that it's blasphemous even to think. And yet she had understood herself to have made a commitment, a vow comparable to marriage. She understood herself to be a spouse of Christ crucified. And the missionaries of charity order still understand themselves to be a spouse of Jesus crucified today. She remained faithful to that vow all those long years even in the midst of periods of intellectual doubt, periods of questioning that were rising out of the levels of suffering that she's encountering in the street, very human questions that naturally well up in us. She expected to face difficulties and challenges over the years in the life of serving Christ. She may not have expected that they would be intellectual ones, but those were part of the difficulties and troubles that she faced along the way. And yet we see in her a kind of steadfast commitment. She remains loyal to Jesus, willing to give her life entirely over to God throughout that period. And I think it's implausible to say that Mother Teresa lost her faith. And yet I think given some of the things that she writes and says during this period, if you assume the belief plus model, maybe that's the right thing to say, that she lost her faith. But to me, that just seems like a very implausible thing to say. And it wasn't that she was acting like a hypocrite. At least I I gather typically she wasn't atheistic in the sense of believing that there is no God, but her belief that there is a God went away, or at least got very weak and she was probably beset by thoughts. What if there's no God? Maybe there is no God. Of course, having thoughts isn't the same as having a belief. There's nothing hypocritical about not being sure about something that you were sure about before or thinking that it isn't so. That's right. At no point did she renounce her relationship with Jesus. If she had done that, clearly I think it would be plausible to say, oh, she gave up her faith. She abandoned her faith. But no, she was remaining fully engaged, immersed in the Christian tradition, religious life, despite the ups and downs in her levels of psychological confidence about some of its central truth claims over the years. Another worry that you might have about the belief plus view of faith concerns the value of faith understood in that way. Jews and Christians in the ancient world thought that God would care about faith. And I think that philosophers of religion should try to understand why they thought that. So what role did people take faith to play in relationships? Why did they think it was valuable? Why does faith talk become the term that describes the response, the kind of human response that God is said to desire of people? 
So if we ask ourselves, why would God care so much about people being in the psychological state of belief? I think the proponent of the belief plus view owes us an answer to that, and that it's difficult to find a satisfying answer, particularly when we keep in mind that in addition to belief, there are many other positive cognitive attitudes that seem that they could play the same role. So perhaps instead of belief, you could think that it's likely to be true or more likely than not. Or maybe you could accept rather than reject the claim or resolve to assume it in your life, even in the absence of belief. Or you could willingly presuppose the claim in your theoretical and practical reasoning, your daily conduct. There are a lot of other options here that I think are worth exploring. And notice that one of the texts that you might take to suggest that belief is required in the New Testament, James 2.19, often translated in English as, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Notice that the epistle of James doesn't place much value at all on believing. Even the demons do that. The kind of response that James is concerned about in living faith is something different than merely believing that God exists. And I think that there is space to argue that we can have the kind of response that James is hoping that we'll have even in the absence of belief. The concern then is that the belief plus model places belief at the center of what it is to have faith. And then we get this picture that what God desires of people is, you know, here's a list of propositions that Jesus was raised from the dead, that God exists, and then maybe a whole load of other mysterious doctrines. And that what God wants of us is for us to work ourselves into the psychological state of belief. You know, that what really matters is that we believe these propositions. And I think that belief is great when the beliefs are true and well-grounded in reason and experience. But there's also the temptation here, if you think that what God wants of you is just to believe this list of propositions, that it invites certain kinds of intellectual contortions or the kind of self-deception that is precisely what Mark Twain was calling our attention to and, and criticizing that a lot of religious people could think of two kinds of folks that you might meet in a church or synagogue who don't have a mental commitment to that whole list of propositions, or if they do, you don't think it's all that great. So think about children, fully religiously committed children, but yeah, they're nine years old and couldn't give you a good recounting of what the 10 most important beliefs are, or something like this that are in a creed. But you want to think they do have a faith commitment, that they have faith. Or think about the sort of person who can rattle off the right list, at least say the right things, and then you find out that they're just a horrible human being. You may not even be sure if they have the beliefs or if they're just saying it, but I mean, on the face of it, sometimes horrible people who are just obviously horrible if you're around them for 10 minutes, they seem to have the beliefs, but you might think something's really lacking. And not only that, but many of the figures that are taken as paradigmatic examples of faith in the Judeo-Christian tradition would have found doctrines that were later articulated in the creeds as baffling. So imagine Abraham. (laughs) He's the father of faith, right? And yet, certainly, he would have found the doctrine of the Trinity or the Incarnation baffling, right? Clearly didn't believe those things. They would have been puzzling to Jesus' earliest followers, the disciples. 
What Jesus seems to call the disciples to is to come follow me. And notice that the disciples respond, and it's not until halfway through the Gospel of Mark, in Mark 8, where Jesus raises the question, who do you say that I am? They've been following. It's presupposed in the narrative that they've had faith up to that point. They've left everything and followed him. And then he raises this question, who do you say that I am? Peter says, I think that you're the Messiah. And immediately, Jesus tells him to be quiet. He begins teaching Peter that Jesus is going to be a very different kind of Messiah, not the sort that most Jews were expecting at the time. So it doesn't seem that Jesus was demanding that the disciples have some well-worked-out list of propositions that they believe or assent to before they can begin following, before they can have faith. You know, at best, that's something that they grow into at some later stage down the road. It's an interesting point how many doctrinal tests they might have flunked. Right. You know, Come and follow me. What did they know at that point? Well, they probably believed in God. They probably thought, here's an interesting guy. Maybe he's a prophet. I'm not sure. I guess I'll take a chance on this. Maybe they have more information than that. I don't know. Maybe they saw him do a miracle or something like that. But even if they did, the people who wrote the Gospels don't seem to take much of an interest in that, right? There's very little description about what they believed at a given time. That just isn't the focus of the narrative. So we've raised this question about why would God care about belief so much? But if we insist that belief is crucial to faith, I do think that there's this further question, and it's one that Bertrand Russell raises in the early 20th century, why doesn't God provide more evidence? If God is centrally concerned with what people believe as a requirement for having faith at all, why not provide more evidence? Things like love for truth, intellectual honesty, authenticity, and responsible assessment of evidence, those are clearly valuable, but belief on insufficient evidence is not. Dr. McCoyne, thanks for talking with us. Thank you, Dale. This week's thinking music has been Our Ego, featuring Different Visitor, by Broke for Free. If you'd like to find out more about the Nature and Value of Faith project, head over to www.thenatureandvalueoffaith.com. There you can find out about its directors, Drs. Quanvig, Doherty, and Howard Snyder. You can see videos of some past presentations, and there's also information about an upcoming conference in September of 2016 in Bellingham, Washington. We got a new five-star review in the U.S. iTunes store. A review from the user MD Israel has the subject line, a very valuable resource. They go on to add, quote, the Trinity's podcast is an excellent resource for discovering more about Christian thought through the ages. I am happy that Dale is keeping the art of conversation alive, especially concerning important theological and historical issues such as these. I'm a regular listener and consider these podcasts to be fair in presentation of the arguments available and also very sharp with good, well-reasoned, and gentlemanly criticism. I highly recommend this podcast to anyone curious to know more about the doctrines of God. End quote. Thanks so much for the rating and review. I really appreciate it. 
you'd like to leave a rate and review in the iTunes store for your country, there are some instructions to help you do that at trinities.org slash blog slash review. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share on social media such as Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. Next week, more from Dr. McCoy as he explains his own view of the nature and value of faith that he's developed in some very interesting articles. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.